Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile, how to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and today we're talking to the forward-thinking pastor, Rod Eccles, who's joining us virtually from beautiful Laguna Beach, California. Pastor Rod is an advocate of being true to your inner calling and believes in following all your visions. Being open to everyone and doing the footwork is the best way to connect more profoundly to ourselves and to one another, which ultimately enables communities to strengthen. Pastor Rod, the minister at Congregational Church, expresses a passion for progressive Christianity, strongly believes in speaking to the issues happening around us, including a passion for social justice. He's from the Baptist South and he's Ivy League educated. He has this wonderful grace about him and a fabulous way with words. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, Pastor Rod. Thank you, Lauren. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, and I really appreciate it. I have to give this disclaimer. This is our second our second conversation uh, the first time, and so, so be it with podcasting. Something happened in the, the editing and, the, and everything else. It got completely messed up, so I really appreciate you coming back and having a, another conversation with me, and as always happens in life, we are each in a different place in our lives at this point. Your shoulder had been operated on and had just been operated on, and you had a conversation with me. We now have a new president. <laughs> I know. And, but we are still in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, we are. And I appreciate you having me. I just see it as another opportunity for us to do it again and see what comes of it now. Uh, it's good to have it up to date. I think that was what, maybe three, four months ago anyway, right? Yeah. So yeah. Like, like you say, a lot has happened and it's good to refresh. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, you were just so gracious saying, yeah, of course. And I, I do appreciate it. I feel much better now with the new shoulder. So yeah, you got me at a good time. Okay, great. <laughs> I just figured we'll just take the conversation from here. So you are a minister in Laguna Beach. You are very proud of your congregation. I know nobody there has had COVID, which you're certainly proud of. You were from the South, the deep South, really. Did you ever picture yourself here at Laguna Beach, California, as a minister when you were growing up? And this kind of a preaching also, it's not even preaching. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great question. And you're right, our, our membership has been untouched by COVID and I'm so very happy about that. We've had you know, extended family and folks you know, in our networks who've gotten the virus, but as far as our membership, we've been super safe. And as far as I know, 100% un, uh, unimpacted, right? So for me, I'm just so grateful for that. And it really goes and shows the power of working together, having a common purpose and really staying committed. Despite all the problems and challenges that come with that, we've remained true. And I'm just so grateful to be able to say that. I guess you can say I am proud. I am proud. Yes, I am. Being from the South. Yes, yes, uh, it's true. Uh, I don't know that I would have expected that I would be a pastor in Laguna Beach. I think perhaps I would have seen myself at least as a a visitor or a tourist or a spectator in Laguna Beach, but not necessarily as a pastor at a church. However, I do give grace and thanks to God because at a time when I was making my sort of way through Southern Baptist theology in Tennessee and finding within it a real value for family and community and caring for other folks, I absolutely can see how those same values are still with me today, even as I pastor in a pretty progressive town in Southern California. I've taken the best of my past and really married it with what I think is a more progressive and inclusive 
way of thinking about the future. Yeah, I, I could see that. And you, well, you went from the business side of the church to now being a pastor. That's how right. Did, how did you, and what made you do that kind of a pivot? That's right. That's right. So when I grew up in the South, uh, I served at a Baptist church, uh, an African-American Baptist church, where I served as, uh, well, a number of roles. I was the assistant clerk while I was still in high school. So I was ser serving and counting money with all the other counselors, and we were all accountable and helping and serving each other. I was in the choir. I was a pastor's assistant. Um, wait, I, which, why don't you just tell listeners what kind of church this was? Because it's a lot different oh, than where oh, yeah, you yeah, are yeah, now, yeah, where you've ended yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this was uh, definitely a Baptist church in the South uh, with a very strong African-American cultural foundation. So we were very good with our music and our outreach and our community service for African-American families impacted. It was a very strong Christian faith with a very deep groundedness in uh, African-American culture. So being together, cooking together, experiencing Bible study and Sunday school and all the other important things that come with that as one family. We were together a lot. I love to joke and say that uh, I was in the church every day of the week except Saturday, because on Saturday, I, we needed to rest up for Sunday. So it was, all, it was always a very uh, strong reason to be in the church. The church was a very strong part of our identity as African-Americans in the South. So I think coming from that experience, having the, I guess you can say, complex history of both serving as a pastor's assistant, being a financial clerk assistant, serving in the choir, having an experience with our donation drives at the church, helping to organize those drives. All of that experience gave me a really profound uh, appreciation for spiritual life and religious community. And I absolutely- that's a, lot, that's a lot of community. It, uh, well, again, again, that was what you did. If you weren't in school, if you weren't out you know, shopping, you were probably in the church in those days because the church really was a strong social and political and religious institution. And it still is for so many in the South. Is, are you trying to, I mean, do you get lonely now? I know I'm bouncing around, but do you get lonely now and miss that? I, I, I know there's... That's a good question. Do I miss it? Well, I think it, I think it matters to sort of step back for a moment and think about a quote that I heard by Maya Angelou when she said, I love you just because of who you are. I love you for who you are. And, and I think when I hear those words, I, I have the same feeling about the black church. In other words, I, I will always appreciate those sort, of, those sort of common values that I got from that experience, meaning a real love for family and a real love for working together and being together, taking care of each other, being for each other and not against each other. You know, all the all the incredible values that I got from that experience. And I do miss that because it was so, it was so strong and it was so apparent whether we were rehearsing or in worship or in prayer meetings or in Bible studies, it was always this idea that we were in this thing together. And I'm always gonna miss that. Now, I, I don't think I'm gonna miss some of the more conservative ways of thinking and being in the world that I got from that experience. But I think overall, yeah, I'm taking way more positive than negative. Okay, so you can take take what you like, leave the rest, and bring that to where you are now. Yes, yes. Uh, that's a good segue to what is it that opened your mind? 
Ooh, good question. I, um, I, don't, I don't I don't think we have enough time, but I'll try to I give know, you the, I the know. short, the short yeah. version. So so I I went to the truncated. I, I know. I yeah, I, yeah, I know yeah, you do. ended up at Brown University and then BU. So that's a it's quite a different. That's a one eighty from where you grew up. It, it is, and the way I can best describe it in the limited time we have, Lauren, is it basically came down to to angels. There's a there's a scripture in the New Testament that talks about the angels that came and sat with Jesus while he was in the wilderness. And so even though people might have assumed that he was alone, he never really was because he had the presence of angels to support him and guide him and, and give him give him wisdom. And that was me. I wasn't Jesus. I was Roderick in the right. wilderness, uh, in a whole new place, a whole new region, a whole nother part of the country. And I had incredible angels who supported me and gave me gave me help and gave me guidance. They were professors. Uh, they were friends. They were folks I met at uh, different churches in that area who all helped to broaden my perspective and help me to think more, uh, what I think progressively uh, about my religious path. I'll give you one example of this concretely. So I have a really strong relationship with the, what was then the uh, Protestant chaplain at Brown University, who at the time was a very strong voice in guiding me from what you might think is conservative thinking theology to more progressive thinking theology. And the way she boiled it down to me, which was so great, she said, when you think about Jesus, she said, at, at his core, he was absolutely a man for the world. He was a man for all people. He was a man for all people from different backgrounds and perspectives. Yes, he was a Jew. Yes, absolutely a Jew. And he, he, he was absolutely a part of his faith. He never abandoned his faith. He was very much a part of, of, of that Jewish, very strong identity. At the same time, he, he allowed it to be seen as a bridge, a bridge to commonality with others and with, with people from all different backgrounds, whether they, whether they call themselves Jews or not. Uh, and I, I thought that was so powerful. I thought that was so incredible. He did not jettison or get rid of his identity. He didn't, he didn't eschew his, his background. He took the best of it. He took, he took the pearls. He took the, the, the beauty. He took the character, the color of it. And he, and he extended it. He opened his hand to others and said, I want the same freedom that, uh, I want the same freedom for you that I have for myself. I want, I, want to, I want to be in community with you. I want to feel at one with you despite our differences. And I thought that was uh, just a really powerful way of thinking about him. It was not the way I was taught to think about him. And so, and so when she was saying those words to me, it was like uh, it was it was like food. It was like I was really being fed a, a different new meal for the first time in my life. Yeah, it must have been quite the culture shock going to Brown. It, it was it was because because I was going from a strong, very strong uh, ethnic uh, cultural church framework to what was being exploded into uh, a, a much more what I think is a dynamic and sometimes unpredictable at many times very intense way of being because you don't have any control anymore you don't you don't have any you don't have any right to order anyone's life anymore you can only extend an invitation for them to be as free as you're trying to be so it was a very different way of being a faith person where control is given to spirit and we no longer try to place ourselves in the role of being god
So what'd you do with that? Where did you go from there? Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I took that sort of uh, uh, angelic love that I received from her and so many others. And I, I took that to the seminary at Boston University. And I spent those entire three years going through this, uh, as I said before, this wilderness experience of, of sort of reconfiguring my way of my way of, of thinking about theology and about Christianity. People love to say that when they go to seminary, they they go to find Jesus. Well, you know, I I went to seminary uh, and I found Jesus, but I found a very different one than the one I was raised with. And for me, I was like a kid in the candy store. I was talking to the kids from the Presbyterian church and the Methodist church. And I linked up with groups from other, uh, other schools from different religions and went to interfaith dialogues and religious conversations about ethics and discussions about uh, the world's problems and how we all have them no matter what our stripes are. And looking at all of those incredible, rich conversations, I remember talking to a Muslim uh, imam, and we were we were having a conversation about Muhammad, and he was saying that the the essence of Muhammad's teaching was about surrender. Islam means surrender. The Arabic means surrender. And he was saying how how Muhammad's teachings was all about an invitation and encouragement into surrendering, realizing that, that we're not in control, God is in control, that our life is not about us, that it's about God, you know, all the incredible things. Yeah, about that, service. I, I, I interviewed service. an imam, and it was so great. Yeah, and, and, it was and he, fascinating. And he, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know any of that. And so, and so he's telling me this, as I'm a graduate student, he's telling yeah. me all this incredible uh, truths about Islam, and I'm, I'm eating it up. I'm, I'm absolutely yeah. just, just digesting it, and it, it changed my life. Because, because here again, I was able to start thinking about other faiths in a way that was much more constructive and life-giving than I had perhaps been taught before. So, so I took that experience, all of that interreligious experience that I had in seminary, and the long story short is I found myself migrating from that Southern Baptist way of thinking to a more open Baptist way of thinking to what I did uh, just three, four years ago when I took the next step and joined the United Church of Christ, which for me has been just, I, I can't tell you just how much of a godsend this has been for me, making that leap from being a Baptist to being a member of the UCC. I'm going to do a quick commercial now and say Yeah, that tell me what that is because I don't know. I'm going to say that in my As mind. As a Jew, I'm like, uh, okay. Yeah, I'm going to say that. I have a stereotypical from the movies, almost like you know, like. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I, so I, I was in the Southern Baptist. I joined the American Baptist, which is a much more open, I think, a much more open uh, Baptist denomination. But three, four years ago, I joined the UCC, the United Church of Christ. And the short version of this is that the UCC is, I think really on the cutting edge of helping us to redefine Christianity, not just in local communities, but globally. Uh, it's a global denomination that is saying, I think very openly that we wanna be united in the love of Christ and the love of Christ is for all, no matter what their labels or stripes might be, Christ is big enough for everyone. And, and it's incredible when you think about that, 
that that automatically gets sort of connected with this idea of just of justice. So we can't we can't have a universal faith without a universal commitment to justice and making things right in the world. You got to have both. You can't be a you can't be an authentic faith person if you're not concerned about the problems and issues of this world, the present day, and writing those writing those wrongs. So for me, I, I, I really appreciate that the UCC doesn't simply just encourage our local churches to do this work, but it's actually a part of the national identity of the entire denomination. And that is just so life-giving to me to know that I'm not alone. And there's a whole fellowship of, of, of churches across this, this country and world that are just as concerned as I am about doing the work in this world to make things better for ourselves and for other people. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like my congregation, mm-hmm. minus minus a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as far as the the justice portion, it's mm-hmm. so huge. It's how I connected with you anyway. <laughs> yep. So yeah, and you are so lit up talking about it. I can see that this is your passion and your work. Did you have any? Did your family have any problem with you switching from the? religion of your origin to what you're doing now or do they see that it just lights you up from the inside and makes you happy i think that they've been very supportive they've been really willing to go with me on this journey they've actually visited my church and you know been a part of some of the activities that we've done around here over the past four four years and i just feel really blessed that they have just been so available to me and there for me throughout all of this and i uh I think I have to say that all of my concerns about whether or not they would support my movement were were quickly assuaged. I mean, on day one, because the love was so there, the support was so real, the hugs and kisses and appreciation were all so evident. And so I I've only felt love from my family. And I'm, you know, there may be some differences there. I'm pretty sure there are. I mean, if you if you look at myself and you take my my whole family, I'm pretty sure I've got some disagreements with some folks in my family, just like anybody else would. Yeah. But but the love has been there. And for that, I'm grateful. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. What challenge are you most proud of overcoming and how'd you do it? Oh, good question. Wow, uh, Lauren, you, you've been uh, working on these on this. I love it. I, I would I would say I would say it has been looking at the reality of traditional Christian church. Go, go with me for a moment here because this I may need a couple of minutes on this one, but I'll do my best to make this brief. I would say the biggest challenge is actually not personal. It's global. In other words, traditional Christian church, is in a real moment of a paradox. On the one hand, we have a very strong message of love and compassion that's modeled by our Jesus. At the same time, uh, we have the truth and reality that much of that message has gotten perverted, distorted, stolen, and, and completely, completely just lost in the mess of so much violence, so much abuse, so much deception, and so much hurt that was based on uh, the Bible and other teachings that have just not been productive. They've just not been positive. They have not, they've not fed people's lives. And people have rightfully, in many cases, 
left the church. They've left their spiritual paths. They've 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 grown uninterested in in matters of spirit and and God and uh, and and religious community. And I understand all of that because while while the message is good, the acts and the behaviors and the the fruits haven't always been good. And so I I get that. You know, I'm 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 working within an institution that for far too long has abdicated its message of love and, and grace. We've allowed it to be stolen. We've allowed it to be perverted. And so we are in a position as Christian pastors, particularly of having to reclaim what was what we allowed to be taken, what we allowed to be stolen. So we, we've done a good job of blaming people, but we haven't taken the time to look at ourselves and the role that we've played in allowing Jesus' message to be, to be taken away, to be stolen. So all that to be said, me and my church have been involved in a very good conversation about the role that we can play in helping to reclaim that message. And what I'm proud of is that in the past, literally the past six months, we have been having a, a great conversation about envisioning ourselves, not necessarily as a church, but as a spiritual center. And we, we believe that that a spiritual center is precisely what Jesus would be trying to create if he was still alive. He would not be looking to create a church where people worship, worshiped him. He would be trying to create a spiritual center where everyone can access and wrestle with spirit together. I think that's what he would be doing now if he were alive. And I think it's what my church is slowly but deliberately moving towards. To me, that is the biggest challenge I faced but I'm also grateful that it looks like answers are being offered and people are starting to coalesce around this idea that the idea of traditional church is an endangered species. It does not mean that there's something wrong with us. It just means that spirit is inviting us to do something more powerful and more life-giving for a new generation. At the same time, at the same time, it's important that I think all of us realize, and, I, and I'm saying this to myself, there's nothing wrong with change. Nothing wrong with change. It's just that we've been ignoring it. It's been in plain sight for so very long. We started to become really complacent. And Spirit is saying, wake up. So would you change the name of church to Spiritual Center? Because that seems more open and yes. I, I don't know. Yes. It sounds appealing. Yes, yes. I, I, think, I think that over time, you're going to find a lot more churches like ours looking at our name, looking at our, looking at our message, look at how we describe ourselves. And yes, naturally, you're going to start to see that word church go away. I mean, I, I really believe that over time, the word church is going to be put to sleep as it I, should be. I could see a lot more people saying, oh, yeah, I'm going over to the spiritual center and then not mm -hmm. and being proud of that instead mm -hmm. of like slinking over or not mm -hmm. wanting to tell your friends you're going to church. But like that being so like, hey, yeah, I'm going. I, what a great name. I really, I really believe that that's the future, Lauren. I really believe this, and I, and I say this, I say this not, uh, not just because I think my church is going to do this. I think, I think over time, churches who, who catch this vision of, of spiritual centeredness, are going to be the ones who I think are able to offer a real counter message to what I believe is the more destructive and life stealing theologies that people continue to follow and support that really are not productive. They really aren't what I believe are the message of Jesus. They just, 
they they aren't. They they serve they serve a kind of selfishness and a kind of self-centeredness that he would not have endorsed. And as a spiritual center, we have an opportunity to write a different story, to to offer a different message, and to and to give people a chance. I I hope to find a place where their where their minds and their hearts can be nurtured. Which is a good lead into a couple of questions that I have. What message would you want to give somebody who to not go after that shiny object when it's not true to who they really are and that they they really do have a dream, but like that's just it's out there. What would you say to that? Well, person? well, I can only use my own experience. I, I came in three, four years ago into a again Christian church that was looking at the reality of the day and asking itself hard questions about how it could survive and not die and what it means to survive and not die, what it looks like. And I can only tell you that for me, because I know it worked for me, it was just a matter of starting some really important conversations. Now, sometimes sometimes we have to first, first have an understanding of who we are, our own centeredness. Right now we're in the season of Lent and in the Christian parlance, Lent is an invitation to let go. Loving ourselves means letting go. And so first, it, before we can do any of this, this hopeful work that we want to do, before we can even have a, a focus that is beyond ourselves, first, we have to have a, a really good self-awareness, have a centeredness about ourselves where we're able to let go of bitterness, let go of anger, and let go of past relationships that hurt us, let go of, of distractions and deceptions, things in our lives, obsessions that have absolutely taken our joy. We have to first sort of divulge ourselves from all that baggage, all that craziness, so we can think rationally and think clearly, think uh, lovingly about who we are, what we need, and what our goals are. That that's a lot of work. I just summarized it in three sentences, but that's a lot that's a lot of work that has to happen before we can enable hope because once we start having those conversations with other people about possibilities and opportunities, they have to feel, they have to know, they have to sense, they have to they have to be able to relate to the fact that we're all on a journey you you're on a journey i'm on a journey i'm changing you're changing so let's change together let's work together let's be in hope together and and that only comes by having us having a self-awareness and then having a voice uh, that can be shared and related with others so so that's what i did for four years i literally had to ask myself hard questions about okay well if i really want to be this this spiritually centered guy I'm going to have to check my ego at the door. I'm going to have to be willing to, to, to take even my Christian label and let go of it. I'm going to have to be willing to let go of my need to define labels for other people. I'm going to have to be willing to, to give up control over that, over that need to, to give people the 21 steps to how to how to nurture a spiritual life, like all these things I had to be willing to sort of give up the spirit. And that was a lot of prayer and, and mental gymnastics and letting go and letting go some more so that eventually I could say to myself and to God, yes, I'm willing to risk it all 
to see what's possible. And then I was able to tell my church that. I was able to tell my leadership, guys, I'm willing to risk it all to see what this thing can become. You see, you see where I'm going yeah, here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I have, I'm, willing, yeah. I'm willing to give it all up, all of this security, all of this predictability, all of this familiarity to see what spirit can do with it. Yeah, I think that's great. I heard you use an Ellie Wiesel quote about hope. Yes. That was just incredible. I, Okay, go ahead. You're not well. Well, I'm, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a I'm a fan of of of, of Ellie because, as you know, uh, as I as I'm sure you know, uh, the the works that come from that are are uh, enormously personal and 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 powerful, traumatic even in in many cases, and and I, I like those works. I like those types of works because it's easy to look at them and to to want to say to ourselves or to anyone else, hey, those those things make me worry. I, I look at all the problems in this world, all the issues with, with children and the environment and trafficking, the issues around our, our media and how often how oftentimes those things are not life-giving. We we look at all these problems and it's easy to worry, right? It's you know, because because Ellie had a lot to worry about. I mean Ellie had a lot to be concerned about. To be to be to be in pain and suffering about, but but then I but then I look at all of those incredible quotes and the amazing poetry and, and imagery that they invoke. I just I just have this feeling that through through Ellie's testimony, it's just a strong encouragement to look at worry as something ultimately pretentious and something unnecessary, something that is just so. It's so part of the, I guess you can say the the the, the the energy that steals our life. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, there's ills in this world. But Ellie did a really good job of saying, at some point, you start to look at all of that as as a lesson, as a guide, as as a guidepost, as a as a um, as a tent in the ground that that helps to direct you on your path. You know, I. I look at all the all the suffering, all the trials, all the challenges. I look at all of it and and I say, you know, yeah, we are the better for it, and we have we have gained a deeper understanding of who we are. We are stronger, you know. Even even Trumpism, even the even even the the issues last year with uh, with racial injustice and and the the deaths of George Floyd and and so many others. Of, of course, it is not God's intent. It's not. It's not my hope. It's not. I don't believe your hope, Lauren. That 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 people die. That people get corona. That people that people endure these trials. But but as quickly as we can say that, we can also say that enlightened people who believe in something larger than themselves can look at those experiences and draw a sense of hope and, and possibility from all of that. Because me personally, I don't, I don't feel that any of that was for naught. I don't believe that Ellie's testimony was for naught. I don't believe that George Floyd's life was for naught. I believe all of those experiences are guideposts that point us to first look at ourselves and all of our warts, the obsessions and deceptions, look at all the truth of who we are right now and then ask ourselves really hard questions about what it's going to take 
to see and experience a better world. I am, I see all of those as invitations to, to do better. And that's why I love reading them. Oh, definitely. Do you want to tell listeners in case there's somebody who doesn't know who Ellie is and yeah, I, I think I think the yeah I think the story of Ellie is so powerful, I'm, and I'm sorry for assuming that because you know sometimes I I, I, I assume it. Too, yeah, yeah, I, I assume. Yeah, um, no, that that just a, a powerful story about uh, just a, someone who who endured so much. Uh, Ellie w- uh, was around in the early 1900s. He was born, I believe, I believe he was born in in the 20s, and he passed away not too long ago, actually. Yeah, think, yeah that's like, true. 2015, 2016. But but he was a writer, um, he was an activist, he was a professor, and he was also a prisoner. He was a Jewish yeah. prisoner. And the, he's a Holocaust, Holocaust survivor. Ab- absolutely a Holocaust survivor. And I I love his his readings, as I said, because they are all invitations to look at our humanity and all of its craziness, all of its dynamism and all of its contradictions. Not to walk away from that, but to walk right through it and to find God in it. That is really powerful work, and it's really extreme work, and it's really personal work, but it's so gratifying, and it's so life-giving. I love Ellie's works. Yeah. What would you tell somebody who's having a hard time getting up in the morning? I don't mean clinically depressed, just having a hard time, and which plenty of people are right now. Uh, I mean, we're kind of over over all of this. <laughs> yeah, I think that's such a, a great question. You know, as I think about it, I encourage folks to, we, we sort of touched on this idea of letting go. Someone asked me recently, how would I define letting go? And I had to step back for a moment because, you know, one could really write a whole book about trying to define this idea of letting go. And the best answer I could come up with without spending two hours trying to explain it uh, was a conversation I had with a, a, a buddy of mine about her definition of letting go. Because I asked her, I, I just said it said directly, like, how would you, how would you define it? She first of all reminded me of this quote by Eckhart Tolle that said that that uh, worry is unnecessary, it's unproductive, it's pretentious. And then she said to me that loving myself means letting go. Those were the five words that she gave me. And they were so powerful that I wrote them down on a sheet of paper and I actually put them on my refrigerator. So every every day I wake up in the morning, when I get out of bed, I have the words, loving myself means letting go on my refrigerator. And I think I think that's so important, especially as we continue to, to go through the, the slog of, of COVID. Being in a place where we can have that constant reminder that loving ourselves is really what it's all about. And we do that by caring for our bodies, caring for our minds, caring for our hearts, but then, and then also enabling the same thing in other people, because by loving others, we're loving ourselves. And I know, and I know that even as I say this right now, there's perhaps someone who's thinking, well, that sounds good, Pastor Rod, but I'm, I'm really bitter and I'm really angry. I've got some past relationships that I haven't quite let go of. I've got some uh, some uh, some obsessions in my life right now that take all my time and all my energy and and all my joy. So I need an answer to that. Well, I don't have an answer to it, but I have an idea. 
there's a text in the in the Gospel of Mark that says that when Jesus went into the wilderness, he was there for over 40 days and 40 nights. Now, Lauren, I don't know about you, but I'd like to imagine that if I'm in a place for 40 days and 40 nights, I'm probably having a very, very, very strong experience with a lot of stories and a lot of a lot of data, if you will. And, and it's not always pretty. There's, it's going to be tough. If I'm dealing with these hard things, this bitterness, this this anger, these struggles in my life, and I got over 40 days to be in the wilderness and think about all of that, it ain't always nice. There's going to be some moments of real honesty and openness, uh, real vulnerability, and real, real sort of heart work there, which gave me an idea. If you if you feel like you're in a wilderness experience right now, and I think many of us are, here's an idea. Create for yourself what I believe Jesus created for himself when he was in the wilderness. I don't think he kept his frustration or his, his, his anger or his hurt or his pain on the inside. I would like to believe that every day he woke up in the midst of all the blessings and miracles and joys and, and, and color of life, there had to have been, there must have been some part of his day when he had to look at the ugly stuff, the things that were keeping him down, weighing him down. And I like to believe that over time, he came to be so self-aware and so, so safe within himself, so sure within himself that God always loved him, that he was able to create for himself what I call a rent window. In other words, I'd like to believe that it wasn't all peaches and cream. It wasn't all roses and strawberries. Sometime during his days in the wilderness, he had to vent and he vented outwardly. He let it all go. See, we talk about letting it go. Sometimes physically letting it go is all you need to do. You know, having a rent window where you get a chance to say out loud, give up, give it up to spirit. I'm having a really crappy day. This relationship is, is killing me. This obsession is, is stealing my peace. This, 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 this deception, this deception that I've allowed to go on for far too long in my life. I gotta, I gotta give that thing up. Create a rent window. Create your own rent window where you can start to physically give all this stuff to the universe. Give it to the spirit. Give it to God. You know what I've come to realize is that once we do all of that, we slowly, over time, start to believe, start to understand that we're not in control. God is in control. We start to realize that our life is not about us. It's about God. And we start to realize that there's always something larger, always something larger than what we see in front of our eyes. If we create something as simply, as simple and as authentic and as human as a rent window, just like I believe Jesus did, then we're on the path to being much more honest, much more vulnerable, much more open with ourselves. Loving ourselves means letting go. Even the moments that hurt us the most, letting go of those, doing it physically, giving it up, and knowing that you're loved even as you do that. 
that you're not less than, that God does not hate you, that spirit does not see you as anything less than it did before. Rant, rant some more and keep ranting until you're able to think about your life, your experience, your journey much more clearly, much more with much more sober thought and much more knowledge that you are made to love and to be loved. Yeah, and then you get to help somebody else when they're going through it to go, I got through it. You will too. You, you will too. Yeah. I, 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 I absolutely believe that. Lauren, I have a rent window and I think other people should too. People ask me all the time, you know, you must be happy all the time. Well, that's a lie. Nobody is. That's Nobody not human. Is. That's not human. That is, that, is not, that, is, that is not human. We need, we need to have a rent window. Now, of course, now, of course, there is a difference between joy and happiness, right? Joy, right. joy, joy is the idea that, that, that all will be well. And, and we know this, even when we can't see it, we get it. All is going to be well. That's where our joy comes from. But happiness, happiness, yes, happiness is absolutely about feelings and, and, and where we're at in the moment and, and, and what, 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 uh, what data we're taking in. Yes, happiness is absolutely much more subjective as it should be. But, yeah. but, but just but be around a dog, be around a dog running up yeah. to you. Yeah, but when you need those moments, have those moments. And when you don't feel good, tell God that too. Have your rent. The more you do it, the clearer, the clearer you'll be, the more sober your thought will become, and the more rationally you'll be able to live your life. Yeah, no, I, I mean, to try to explain letting go or surrender what you were talking about before, I was like, hmm, nobody ever asked me that. That's why I'm not a pastor. <laughs> well, well, trust me, trust me, trust me. I, I know what I'm saying is, is uh, I know what I'm saying is something that this world doesn't necessarily teach us. But at the same time, I think that all the great teachers, Jesus, Mohammed, all the great women teachers, even, even the folks from the civil rights movement, uh, the women and men who we know nothing about, I think all of them in their own way understood this power of surrender and letting go. And I think they all had their own practice. I think it it's also, I think it's also the trust that they showed up and they did mm -hmm. it anyway. And it's just yep. the faith and the trust and that you just, it, you, you, you walk through the fear and you do it yes. anyway. That, yes. That's, that's staying out of the results and just going and doing you it. You don't, you don't go, you don't go around it. You go through. No, you go through, right. Mm -hmm. And you just show up despite mm -hmm. how you feel and you feel mm -hmm. the intense feelings for five minutes and then, okay, I felt it or I journaled through it or whatever. And now I'm going to go. Now I'm going to go. And I, and, I, and I think that is exactly what more of us need to need to have the permission to do. We need to be given the invitation to live our lives that way where we go through it. And we, and we know that when we go through it, we're still loved. I can't, I can't imagine, I can't, I can't begin to imagine or describe to you the amount of people who, who have told me in their lives that if I do those things, I feel that some, somehow God doesn't love me. I feel like I'm not measuring up, that I'm not, that I'm not meeting the standard, that I'm not being a good Christian. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to gen, I'm going to genderize this now that needing permission sounds like a female uh, very much. <laughs> that, that just, I, I can't imagine too many male needing permission. Uh, it, yeah, I agree. I agree. It, it is it is more women than men, but I've had some men. I have had some men. I will say that say that to me, and and it, and it makes sense. It makes sense because again, we are we are constantly in this in this place of 
having to know that as we go through these things, God loves us, that we're not anything less than we were before. And even, and even me in my own experience, when I've had my, my wilderness moments, when, when I say those words, loving myself means letting go, at the root of that is I'm whole. I have everything I need inside of me. Uh, God gave me all the tools I need to get through this. I mean, these are, these are all different ways of saying the same thing. I'm still loved. Do you have any message of hope you want to give? Whoa, a message of hope. Wow. That you haven't, um, that you haven't already. You've, you've certainly given plenty. Uh, wow. That's a great question. You know, you, Lauren, you, we, we should do more of these, Lauren. I, 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 I have a, I can see something here, Lauren. We'll do a series. Um, I can see something here. Hope. Yeah. I think for me, I think what I would like to say is this COVID situation, while it looks like there's no end in sight and we're still hearing sort of reports about, you know, sort of new variants or, you know, different permutations of this thing that could be coming alive in the next months or even years. One thing I've absolutely taken from this, no matter what happens in the future, is I am so deeply grateful for the wellspring of compassion that has come out of this whole experience. I mean, I am, you know, there were moments in my life when I wasn't quite sure just how much compassion there really was out there in the world. I know, I know how much I, I know how much I want there to be compassion. I know that that's what God is. I get all of that, but I'll be honest. There were times when I just, I just wasn't sure just how much capacity people had for compassion. And I tell you, I have just been so warmed by the incredible outpouring of, of tenderness and gentleness and, and safety and, and sensitivity that people have shown, not just to me, but to others that I have in my life. And I, 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 I see that as a kernel. I, I, see that, I see that as a real core truth about us as humanity, that despite all the Trumpism and injustice, rancor, and divisiveness that we have in this country and probably will have for the foreseeable future, if we're being honest, that kernel is always there, that we can be forgiven, that we can be forgiving, and that we can be a compassionate, abundant people. And that's what drives me. And that's what keeps me going in my work. That's, that's what gives me real hope, Lauren. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And I felt that too. There, there is, there's so much good out there. So thank you for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope. It's so good to see you again. I can't, I can't thank you enough. I am just so grateful that we had this time. And I hope that everyone, everyone knows just how much I'm grateful to have you in my life, Lauren. You are incredible. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you Rod's messages of justice, community, and personal affirmations. Such a great way to get up and go in the mornings. If you're on Clubhouse, be sure to visit me on Tuesdays. I have a room there every week. Introduce yourself and let me know you're there. Tune in next week and hear the visionary business mentor and entrepreneur, Tony Watley. 
Tony's a best-selling author, podcast host, and speaker. He's best known as co-founder of LS1 Tech. It's an online automotive community, and it grew into the largest of its kind. He now works to help others, including you, discover your true potential. It was a great, great conversation, and he got very emotional. It was really interesting and fabulous, not boring at all episode to record. So be sure to tune in next week and hear Tony. If you've got any feedback for me at all, if there's somebody you'd like to hear, anything you'd like to let me know, go to our website, 52weeksofhope.com. Also, we have a free ebook available for you, How to Be Your Best Self Now, that's available. That's on the website, 52weeksofhope.com. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a positive review, and send us feedback on the website, 52weeksofhope.com. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.